invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 15. While you're doing that, I just want to thank uh, you for your prayers on um, Joanne on my behalf and Trish and the kids. Um, God has been so faithful and good this week to us. Um, and so I just want to thank you for that. I want to just leave um, just a word for the fathers here particularly. Uh, one of the lasting images of, that I'll have of the funeral this, um, this past Friday happened before the funeral started. So we got there early, 1030, um, to get ready just for visitation. And um, I just noticed Trish and the kids gathered together quietly up by themselves up to the front of the auditorium. It was empty. And they got around the piano, and they sang, uh, I will sing of the goodness of the Lord. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I'm able, I will sing of the goodness of the Lord. And, um, and it just struck me, that's, that's the legacy we want to leave as men, as fathers, right? When, when you get taken out at 52 years old, 53, um, you want your, your uh, family, your wife and your children to be able to get around the piano and sing of the goodness of the Lord. So fathers, I just want to charge you, that's the goal, that's what we're, that's what we're aiming for, right? That's, that's our calling as men of God. And uh, one of the ways that God does that for us, helps us to that, is uh, by bringing us the truths that we're going to be talking about this morning, the truths of what it means to be a Christian, um, who we are, what we've received, what we're promised. Uh, these are the things that we need to seed into the lives of our kids so that uh, when heartaches come, they can stand with broken hearts and yet uh, with a deep-rooted faith in the goodness of God because they know who they are and they know what's been what belongs to them in Jesus Christ. And so let's give our attention then to Romans chapter 8. The chapter begins with, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we're going to see one of the reasons that's true is because it is God our Father himself who has justified us and made us his children. Let's begin then verse 12. And I'm going to read through verse 17, excuse me. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for this word given to us by the Spirit. And thank you that you show us again the beauty of Jesus and all that we have in him today. And open our eyes to see it and uh, our hearts to delight in it. Use this truth powerfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were paying attention in English class, you know that uh, Oliver Twist is a classic novel written by Charles Dickens. Uh, if you are a movie uh, person, you uh, probably know that uh, there was a movie version of that uh, classic story released in 2005. Roman Polanski was the director. I uh, read an article uh, and interviewed Polanski, and he spoke of why this story had such a powerful 
and personal appeal to him. And he said the reason it, uh, it appealed to him so strongly is that he had experienced for a period of his life when he was a young boy what it was like to be an orphan. Uh, Polanski uh, had been uh, imprisoned in the Krakow ghetto in Poland during World War II. And as a young boy, 10 years old, he managed to escape and for two years was on his own. He says, I, I know what it's like to walk for kilometers without socks in boots with bloody feet. Uh, so he was wandering the countryside, living with different families uh, until the end of the war. Uh, much like a penniless orphan in Oliver Twist, Polanski says, quote, I knew that the worst thing in life isn't a hard bed or hunger, but having no parents. The worst thing in life is not having a parent. Imagine being a young boy alone in a world at war, left on your own day after day just trying to survive, every night going to sleep with a deep aching emptiness inside where a loving, protecting parent was supposed to be. Imagine how frightened and lonely and lost you would feel. Well, some of you don't have to imagine too hard because... Truth be told, you do often feel like you're on your own. Do you ever just feel lost, alone, afraid? I think every professing Christian has those experiences from time to time. Some professing Christians have those feelings almost all the time. We believe the gospel is true, and yet truth is inside we feel like orphans, spiritual orphans, day by day just trying to make it through doing the best that we can, but in the depth of our soul, there's an aching emptiness where a loving, protecting Heavenly Father is supposed to be. This morning we come to the wonderful doctrine of adoption. It's to our great detriment, often a neglected doctrine, something that we don't talk about nearly as much as we should. If I were to ask you the question, what is the first thought that comes to mind when I say the word Christian? How many of you would say, child of the Heavenly Father? Last week, uh, we noted that the definition of a Christian is someone who's been filled by the Holy Spirit, someone who is according to the Spirit. And this morning, we see that that Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. It's the Spirit that teaches us about the truth of who we are as the children of the Heavenly Father. And it's critical that we understand this. Uh, G.I. Packer uh, writes, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Let me just read that last sentence again. If this is not the thought that I'm a child of the Father that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Paul's great mission in the book of Romans is to help Christians understand actually who they are, what is true of them by virtue of the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ. He wants uh, his readers to grasp the full glory of who they once were in relation to Adam and under the law and under condemnation and who they now are in union with Christ 
justified by His imputed righteousness so that there's no condemnation, sanctified by His indwelling Spirit, and adopted by His own Heavenly Father. And this morning in these verses, Paul just captures four aspects of the child of God. Uh, what drives them, the inner impulse that moves them, uh, what they, uh, who they are, their identity, what they have, the intimacy with God, and then what they are promised, the inheritance that God gives. And so we'll just be looking at the impulse, identity, intimacy, and inheritance. First, the, the impulse of a Christian, verse 12 through 13, and, and we see this sort of reflected in a um, in a negative way, where Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Something else is driving us. What is the empowering motive of a Christian? What moves them? Well, Paul is in, in verses 5 through 11, remember, drawing this really sharp distinction between those who are of the flesh and those who are of the Spirit, according to the Spirit. And those who are of the flesh have the mind of the flesh, and, and, uh, and, they, and they are empowered, uh, motivated by the flesh. Paul uh, speaks of that in Ephesians 2, if you remember, uh, you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are the things that are true of those who are of the flesh. Uh, that's the driving and empowering uh, motive of their life. And and, and now Paul has said, but you, that's not true of you. You, you are of the Spirit. You're, you live according to the Spirit. And, and Paul in verses 12 and, 13, 12 and 13 is concluding what he had said in 5 through 11. And we know that because so then, right? That's how he begins. So then, in light of everything I've just said, in light of, of the distinction I've, I've shown you and who you are now in the Spirit of Christ, let me remind you now, brothers, we who are in the Spirit, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. This is not uh, calling us to do something. This is an, an, an announcement. It's good news. Something that's true of us in the Spirit. We are under no obligation to the flesh or the powers of the flesh. And by flesh, he's not just talking about our physical appetites. He's talking about the principality of a fallen world, the, the rulers and powers uh, of, of uh, life in rebellion against God, where we all once were. And, and we're no longer under that dominion. We don't need to listen to those principalities or powers or rulers, uh, whether that's uh, demons around us or the uh, the sinful appetite, the, the, the sinful desires of, the, of indwelling sin, right? We, we don't have to listen to any of it. We under, we're under no obligation, no debt. We don't owe the flesh anything. That's freedom. We're under no constraint. We're not driven by the flesh. Instead, what, what drives a Christian is the spirit of life. The Spirit who shows us Christ, that's what the Spirit does, shows us Jesus. And Paul will tell us in another letter, 2 Corinthians 5, that uh, what drives and empowers a 
Christian is the Spirit showing us the beautiful love of Jesus Christ. So in in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, meaning Jesus' love for us, not our love for him. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ, Jesus' love for me, is the compelling motive of a Christian. It's what, it's what drives us as the Spirit shows us Jesus. This is going to be the growing, growing reality of your life if you're a Christian. This, this, this growing sense that I am a loved person. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's, that's going to be the, the driving impulse of your life. Paul says in, in Galatians 2.20, the life that I live in the flesh with all the brokenness of, uh, and, and fallenness and failure that belongs to that, but the life I live in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave his life for me. The, the Jesus that drives the Apostle Paul is not Jesus the moral teacher, and it's not Jesus the, the great example. It's not j- just even Jesus in his being, the Son of God. It's, it's Jesus, all of that, but Jesus who loved me. Jesus who loved me and gave his life for me. That's the driving motive of a Christian. And that's made ours by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, there's a warning here that Paul gives, put it sort of parenthetically, but we need to hear it. Verse 13, if, if you do live according to the flesh, you will die. It's not a threat meant to frighten the child of God into obedience. We're not driven by fear. We're going to see that in a moment. But it is a statement of fact, which meant, it's meant to function um, in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian and, and to tell us that the person who professes to be a Christian and yet insists on living according to Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3, right? L- insists on living by the principles of the flesh and the powers of, of this fallen world. Th- that, that person who professes this and insists on living like this is not a Christian, And that person is going to die unless they repent. And when Paul says die, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about death in its fullest sense, eternal separation from God. Douglas Moo in his commentary says, We must not eviscerate this warning. Paul clearly affirms that his readers will be damned if they continue unrepentantly to follow the dictates of the flesh. Now, just to be clear again, Paul isn't saying that if you struggle with indwelling sin, you're going to die, right? Romans 7 has shown us that indwelling sin is a reality that every Christian faces. And so if you're battling with sexual immorality, right, if you're fighting a war with gluttony or alcohol or drugs or gossip or anger or greed, all these Evidences of the flesh, if those sins are, it's just where you find yourself. Paul isn't meaning here to, to make you doubt your salvation. But, but what he is saying 
is that if you are not fighting those sins, if you're making excuses for those sins, if you're justifying those sins, you're making rationalizations for them, you've accepted that this is just kind of who you are and what you're like, and you're not confessing them, you're not going to Christ in prayer and repenting, and and you're not battling using the weapons that God has given you. You're just living there. Well, Paul says, if that's true of you, if you're you're living in your sin, you're going to die in your sin, unless you repent. Don't be deceived. But if you're a Christian, you will be engaged in the battle. If you're a Christian, you're going to be fighting. You can't help it because the Spirit is in you. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that the Spirit and the flesh are battling. If the Spirit is in you, you're going to be in a battle. And he he follows this stern warning with a wonderful gospel affirmation. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How does a Christian fight sin? How does a Christian actually make progress in this war, and, and, and grow in holiness? And the answers, unfortunately, often fall into one of two errors. On the one hand, you'll have the error of moralism, which is just try harder. You're, you're not trying hard enough. You need to do more. On the other hand, the, the problem is, uh, the error is pacifism, which says stop trying so hard. You're doing way too much. Just let go and let God. Relax. God understands. That's the air of pacifism. And the gospel answer is is so much better and so much more encouraging. How do we grow in holiness? We grow in holiness by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in our life so that we can fight in the power of the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we can put to death the misdeeds of the body. Holiness doesn't come by a technique or by, uh, by more effort. Uh, alone, right? It comes by the power of God as God is at work in our life. Remember, we've, we've said this before in chapter 6, that sanctification is a work that God is doing in us by His power. He is, right, those He justifies, He's going to glorify. And sanctification is the bridge there. He's, it's going to happen for if, if you are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. And the evidence that it is happening is that you will be working. You'll be striving. So Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. And so if if there's a sin in your life that you've identified as sin and is displeasing to God, and if the Spirit is in you as well, by the Spirit, you'll, you'll recognize the sin, you'll grieve the sin, you'll uh, repent and turn to Christ and pray for help and go, to, and go to work. Why? Because the Spirit is in you. And, and by the Spirit, you are being driven to battle and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You see, Paul wants us to, to engage in, in the fight by first of all, understanding what is true of us, if by the Spirit you put to death the the misdeeds of the body. He wants us to understand that who we are and and what it means that the Spirit is in us and and, uh, what's been given to us. And so he moves immediately now to the doctrine of adoption because he wants us to understand who we are and what we have and what our destiny is. 
And so let's look first who we are, identity. 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And, and now he's just pounding, pounding, pounding on this issue of identity. Who are you? Christian, you are a son of God. And, and that word son uh, has a much richer, deeper meaning for the people in Paul's day than it does maybe in our day. In our day, it, it just basically refers to DNA, genetics. Uh, in, in Paul's day, uh, that sonship, well, your, your identity was defined by, and your life was defined by, your destiny, in large part, was defined by your lineage, who your dad was, who your father was. Was your father a free man? You, were a free, you are a free man. Was he a slave? Well, then you're a slave. Is he a Roman citizen? Then that's true of you. Is he not a Roman citizen? Well, then I'm sorry. Does he have wealth and honor? Then you have wealth and honor. If he, is, he, is he a poor, poor man? Well, then you're a poor man. You see, your, your identity is, is not created by you. It's given to you through your father. It, it's, it's something that you receive. Tim Keller makes the point. I saw an interview, uh, just, this was shortly before he passed away, where someone was asking him, um, how, how should we as Christians speak to our culture today? And he said one of the key ways that Christians today should have, could speak to a culture, is our culture, is by talking about the issue of identity. Because this is where the gospel confronts our culture head on today. Our culture, you see, is enslaved to the religion of creating your own identity. It's the moral responsibility, according to our culture, of every person. You've got to find out who you are. You've got to craft your own identity. And you need to fulfill your own self-created destiny. It's exhausting and empty. It's just a chasing after the wind. You see, the, the gospel offers something so vastly superior. The gospel offers an identity that's not uh, created by us, but given to us by grace through faith. An identity that's greater than anything we ever could have imagined, and a destiny that's vastly superior to anything we ever would have dreamed. All freely given to you. By virtue, you see, of your sonship. By being made, through Christ, the very children of God. So all who are, Paul says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you find within you, you see, desires that could only come because of the Holy Spirit, that means you're a son. And he's not trying to be sexist here. He's not excluding ladies, obviously. But... But sons get the inheritance. The identity, in a sense, passes on down to the sons. And so, so you're all, right? Men or women, boys and girls. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you are a son of God. If, this, if you find within you that the Spirit of God has given you the, the, the faith to know that Jesus Christ really is God the Son come in flesh... And you believe in truth that this Jesus lived a perfect life and died an atoning death bearing your sin. And, and if you believe the promise of the gospel that if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you believe those things, that's not by your flesh. The devil did not work that in your heart. Your own proud mind didn't work that in your heart. 
The Spirit of God did that. If you find within you a genuine sorrow for sin because it breaks your heart that you, you sin against the Jesus who loved you and gave his life for you, and if you have this, this deep longing to be more and more like him, and you're realizing increasingly that the stuff of this world, it's all temporary. It's fleeting. And the stuff that matters are the things that are eternal, the things that stand, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Friends, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's the only possible answer. And if the Holy Spirit has created those things in your life, then Paul wants you to know that you are a, a child of God. You are sons. The Father of Jesus is your Father. Jesus himself is your elder brother. You are part of the family of of God, as much as Christ Jesus himself, this is your identity. You're a son of God. And that comes with this beautiful intimacy, verses 15 and 16. What do we have? Well, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I love how Paul knows where we live. He's not just kind of talking high-grade theology up here. Paul brings it right down to where we live because he knows that we often live like spiritual orphans. What do you suppose is the overriding experience of a little boy or a little girl who has no parents, has no family, no father, mother it would be fear fear who's going to take care of you who's going to provide for you who's going to protect you who's going to watch over you while you sleep so that you're safe but see friends isn't it true that these are often the fears that we face we we believe in Jesus and yet we often wrestle with orphan fears we are afraid of hardship and heartache and loss. We're, we're afraid of death. We're afraid sometimes of judgment. And yet, those fears are utterly groundless for those who are children of God. You see, the reason Paul can say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is not just because of what is true of you in Jesus Christ, but it's, it's because it is God who justifies. And who is the God who justifies? It is your own heavenly Father who justifies. He's not just the judge who's legally declared this something to be true of you. He's the heavenly Father who triumphantly declares and shouts, this is true of you. This is my Son, righteous with whom I am well pleased, right? That in Jesus Christ, that is, that, that is said of us. That's the God who justifies. The God who loved us before the foundation of the world, who, who made us, gave us to Jesus so that we could be his forever children. And our Father has promised to take care of us, to protect us, to provide for us, to watch over us while we sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And we need to take that truth to our fears. We so easily live like orphans. It's not uncommon, of course, when, when children, orphan children are adopted. 
It's very common that they will continue to live for a period of time as though they were still orphans, right? They still may hoard food. They, they might still wake up with nightmares at night, experiencing orphan fears. And, and how do you help that child? How do, you, how do you help that child understand what's true of them? Now they're part of a family and they have a father and a mother who loves them and is going to care for them. Well, the only way is just to be by continually reminding them of these truths, reminding them you're not an orphan. You belong to us. You, we are your parents. We're going to take care of you. You don't need to be afraid. And that's exactly what the father does for us. The spirit of adoption is the spirit who reminds us over and over and over, you're a child, you're a child of the Father, you're not an orphan. And he teaches us to cry, Abba, which is the the word for Father. It's the exact word that Jesus used when he spoke to his Father in heaven. And the spirit of Christ within us now teaches us to pray in exactly the same way, Oh, Father who art in heaven. Father who art in heaven. Father is the Christian name for God. And when we use that that title, Father, we're not just ascribing something that is true of God. We are laying hold of something that is true of us. We are the Father's children. I'm a child. I'm not an orphan. We're stepping into the truth of who we are, that I am God's child by God's decree and by Christ's own work, and the Spirit is testifying to that truth within me. The Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit is talking to us to confirm this truth, convince us of this truth, so that it it becomes increasingly to form our identity. I don't belong to this world, and I don't belong to me. I belong to Jesus. I'm I'm a child of my Father in heaven, and I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be anxious because I'm a child of my father and Jesus is my elder brother and I am vastly wealthy in him. And there Paul talks about our inheritance, what is promised to us. Verse 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm not going to be able to unpack all this uh, today. Uh, Hopefully next time we'll be able to get into that a little more. But for now, just hear what Paul says, what God says in his word. If children, then heirs. Uh, You could also translate that since children, then heirs. Because that's the point. The certainty of our inheritance is rooted in the certainty of our adopted status. We're children. And since we're children... We're heirs of God. That means that all the blessings, all the riches, the treasures that belong to God belong to us. If, if I'm an heir of Bill Gates, that means that at some point, all that belongs to Bill Gates belongs to me. And that is peasant's dust compared to what I have in Jesus Christ. Heirs of God means you are the authorized recipient of all the wealth and the riches which belong to God, which God has promised and which Christ has gained. You are an heir to everlasting life. You are an heir to glory and honor in the presence of God. You are an heir to reigning with Jesus Christ 
forever in a new heaven and a new earth. It's, it's the inheritance that God our Father has promised to us and delights to give to us. I love what Jesus says in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. Not half. Not bits and pieces. It's my Father's pleasure and your Father's pleasure to give you. That's what Jesus says. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we receive that kingdom, you see, just as and on the same basis as Christ. We are heirs with Him. Uh, that means it can't possibly be lost. For us to lose our inheritance, uh, Jesus would have to lose his inheritance. And he can't possibly lose that because he's gained his reward by his perfectly obedient life. And he purchased that reward for us by his own atoning blood. And so it can't possibly be lost to him or to those who belong to him. And the Father delights to give to all those who are in Christ, all the riches of eternal glory and honor and blessing and dominion that belong to the Son. It's just, it's stunning. It's absolutely mind-boggling. We are heirs, friends, heirs of God and heirs with Christ. And, and that should have a stunning impact in our life. I mean, just imagine if I told you, or imagine what would happen right to your children. If you said to your children, boys and girls, uh, uh, honey, we, uh, God has blessed mom and dad, and, and when we get to a certain age, uh, you're, you're going to have an inheritance. It'll be about somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million. And you're, you know, you're a 20-year-old. Uh, how's that going to change the way you think about your future? I mean, that's going to settle in there as a, okay, there's a rock here uh, of financial security that allows me the freedom to live without financial fear. I, we're going to be okay. You think about it, I think, every day. Well, think of, of how this truth should compare because our inheritance is it's. It's just vastly greater than all, all the riches and wealth of the world because it, it, we are heirs with Christ of a new heaven and a new earth and, and everything that we, that we gain is going to last forever. Everything in this earth is going to pass away. And yet the glory and the honor and the blessing, the beauty, the truth that's going to belong to us and robe us and, and the glory that's going to be revealed in us are things that, that will never ever pass away. In fact, we'll just expand as we continue to grow in our understanding of God and, and see more and more of His glory. And that, and that truth, you see, friends, that, that must impact our life as we live not for the things that are seen, but for the things that are unseen. That's the life of a child of God. That's the life of a Christian. I loved how Tom Grossma ended the funeral Friday just took this quote from C.S. Lewis from The Last Battle, the end of the book. And Lewis writes, now as the, as the children um, 
have now finally left the shadowlands and have entered into the glory that's eternal. And Lewis says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one, no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And Tom just so beautifully made the point when Randy stepped into eternity, he opened the book finally to chapter one of the true story, the real story, the eternal story. And it just goes on and on, every chapter better than the last. And friends, that's exactly what is promised to you in Christ Jesus. And so we're to live our life here, the life that God has given to us, a life that is deeply meaningful because we live it to the glory of God, and yet a life that we live with our eyes fixed on the inheritance, what is yet to come. This isn't, this isn't what it's about. This isn't what it's for. Jesus didn't die so you could have a nice house and drive nice cars and have a comfortable life. He blesses us with those things because he loves us, and yet he died to give us the inheritance. He died to give us the kingdom, the whole thing. Imagine how wealthy you are in Jesus. Spend your time daydreaming about the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. And then by the Holy Spirit, walk in those truths. And by the Holy Spirit, pray, oh God, just help me to see, help me to believe with the eyes of faith, to lay hold of what is promised to me in Jesus and to lay hold of who I am in Christ and in those truths, then to go to battle with indwelling sin. And in those truths, knowing that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And one day, one day, we put it all aside, all the tears, all the pain, all the heartache, all the loss, it all, it all gets put aside. And we step into the fullness and the wholeness and the glory that God has promised to us, our Father, all that he delights to give to us, all because of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we... We are, Lord, pilgrims, and some of us are, are very weary pilgrims, and yet we are joyful pilgrims as you remind us who we are and what is ours already and what is promised to us and can never be taken away from us, all the riches and the glory that are ours in Christ Jesus. And Father, I, I thank you that we can have this confidence because it's given freely to those who confess their sin and call in the name of Jesus Christ. And we can have this confidence because the Holy Spirit has given us that ability to believe and, and that desire for what is yet to come. For we look for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And Father, I thank you that you're not ashamed to be called our God because you have prepared a city for us. I pray, Lord, that the riches that we have the truth of who we are and the witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Lord, would, would purify our life and give us courage and strength to fight, to give us the ability to endure, to give us the ability to sing that God is so, so good even when our hearts are breaking. And we'll give you the thanks, God, all because of Jesus. 
We pray that he would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing together. There is a higher throne, our true home. Let's stand together and sing in faith. you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And so shall they put my name upon the people and I will bless them, says God. Amen.